If doctors told us that we'd made a breakthrough on COVID-19, we would rejoice. We'd feel hope that we could live our lives again, get back to work, back to doing what we want. Well, masks are a ticket to that freedom. We can help protect others and save lives by covering our noses and mouths, which is how the virus mainly spreads. Until there's a vaccine, grab the breakthrough that's already here. When we're out, it's masks on. A message to help keep you safe. Brought to you by the Ad Council. 20 seconds to air. Stand by, all cameras. Stand by in videotape. Stand by slow-mo. Stand by to open your mics on the field. Stand by in graphics. Ready with your opening supers. Stand by the announcers in the booth, please. shot from the top of the Astrodome in Houston, Texas. A sellout crowd on hand, 50,000. It could have been 100,000. Tonight's attraction, one of the hottest tickets in recent years here in Houston. And live from the Astrodome, ABC's NFL Monday Night Football, a top AFC matchup. The Miami Dolphins against the Houston Oilers. This ABC Sports exclusive is being brought to you by GMC Truck and Coach Division of General Motors and your local GMC dealer. At GMC, trucks are what we're all about. And by Lowenbrow, when you want the taste of a truly great beer, there's really only one. Tonight, let it be Lowenbrow. There are the standings in the AFC Eastern Division. A win for Miami tonight would tie them with the Pats, who beat the Jets in a tough one yesterday. But New England and Miami both quite apparently headed for the playoffs. There are the standings in the AFC Central Division. Pittsburgh ahead of Houston, but Houston very much alive for a playoff berth and good enough to have beaten Pittsburgh on a Monday night early. Remember a great game, 24 to 17. The crowd behind me roaring, pom-poms everywhere in display as the Houston Oilers are about to be introduced. Hello again, everyone. We think tonight we've got about as good a matchup as you could have in the National Football League at this stage of the season. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, here we go. Let's get into it, folks. How you doing? My name is Tim Hanlon, and it's Good Seats Still Available. Yeah, it's the curious little podcast, our little journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports, and as you can uh uh, guess by our little uh, our little clip there as we start our show this week. We're back into football, and boy, it's not just football. It's Houston Oilers football. Yeah, Houston Oilers number one. But we'll get into that in a few minutes, too. Uh, well, uh, you know, if you uh, grew up and live in Houston, uh, maybe you fancy yourself a fan of the Texans now, uh, you might want to ask your uh, your elders, perhaps, what was going on uh, in the decades prior to the Texans' arrival, 
Uh, the Houston Oilers, what a team. Uh, it certainly made a lasting impression, and it still does, frankly, for any uh, Houstonian. Uh, and uh, frankly, people in Texas and the AFC, uh, the old AFC or the, the current AFC, whatever, and the old AFL, for that matter. Uh, what a what a story uh, this was. And frankly, in many respects, kind of continues to be uh, the legacy uh, very much lives on the uh, the colors and the uh, the, the logo, uh, the name and, of course, the history. And we're going to get into the story of the Houston Oilers this week with our special guest, Ed Fowler, the Reverend. Ed Fowler, retired, but still actually a real, honest to goodness, Anglican church minister slash reverend Ed Fowler uh, is an interesting part of the story here, too. Uh, We'll sort of uh, get into that uh, interesting career uh, change uh, and what was Ed prior to his uh, higher calling, shall we say. He was a longtime sports writer. Yeah, largely in the uh, the Houston metropolitan area uh, with the Houston Chronicle. But before that, uh, places like the Austin American Statesman, uh, the Kansas City Star, the Chicago Daily News uh, here closer to us or what used to be closer to us uh, back in the day when news newspapers were a thing um, and uh, sports writing in those newspapers were more than the thing. They were probably, uh, frankly, uh, the uh, sort of Uh, unwritten reason why a lot of people actually subscribe because the sports section was uh, uh, not only journalism, but also uh, a diversion from uh, the the distractions of uh, of a crazier world in the uh, earlier sections of a newspaper. Uh, But Ed Fowler is an interesting story uh, himself, uh, but also the topic at hand that we're going to get into. We're going to use him and his uh, book that came out in the late, uh, not 70s, late 90s. Yeah, there you go. It was 1997 in particular. Uh, and this is how we uh, sort of discovered and, and, and uh, got in contact with Ed. The book is called Loser Takes All. Bud Adams, key part, part of the story for sure. Bud Adams, Bad Football and Big Business. It's really the story uh, of the Houston Oilers uh, and uh, sort of how it came and uh, uh, messily went. And uh, and uh, our, our conversation this week with Ed Fowler gets into uh, the story of the book, the story of the Oilers. Uh, and as you can imagine, we uh, we try to tackle, no pun intended, yes, pun intended, uh, all of those uh, uh, issues relating to uh, the ups, uh, and certainly there were a number of them, uh, The uh, but largely downs, especially on the way out uh, of the, uh, the Houston Oilers. Now, of course, uh, represented in reconstituted form, uh, as the Tennessee Titans. And yes, we talk about the Tennessee Oilers for a couple of years. Again, the messy uh, departure from Houston. And, and at last check, not a whole lot of oil in uh, anywhere in the state of Tennessee. But no, that didn't stop the team from still being called the Tennessee Oilers uh, for a couple of years before they uh, firmly and uh, officially domiciled themselves uh, in Nashville. Uh, two years, many forget, uh, were prior to that in Tennessee, in Memphis at the Liberty Bowl. That's uh, where they were known as the Tennessee uh, Oilers and uh, before becoming the, the Titans. So all part of the uh, the lore and the legacy and the very interesting stories uh, related to that. And uh, the clip at the beginning kind of gives us sort of a hint. It's certainly uh, uh, it's debatable as to when the era in the late 70s uh, really kind of started. Uh, it is known without uh, uh, conjecture, however, as the let's call it the Love Ya Blue era. Uh, this is around the time, late uh, 1978, 79, 80 or so, 
uh, when the Houston Oilers were probably amongst uh, the hottest, if not in, in cer- certain areas of, of NFL football, the hottest team uh, going um, with an amazing array of stars, uh, including one uh, hot rookie uh, by the name of Earl Campbell. Um, you know, phenomenon really is a, an understatement, I guess, not only in Houston, but in the NFL itself. And uh, it took a little while to kind of congeal into what actually became a trademarked uh, phenomenon, literally called Love You Blue. Uh, but uh, most scholars uh, would kind of circle around uh, uh, November 20th, 1978, and the Monday night football game that you just heard a little clip from, the intro to Frank Gifford and Howard Cosell and Dandy Don, where um, the, uh, the Oilers were uh, hosting uh, a nationally televised uh, a game um, against the Miami Dolphins and uh, was kind of sort of a, a sort of a, a burst of, uh, of of energy and color and noise uh, that absolutely came across on the on the broadcast uh, the pom-poms uh, waving everywhere uh, and a hell of a game and actually many people think uh, that is perhaps one of the best Monday Night football games of all time. That game when the Oilers uh, uh, won uh, a, a very entertaining game. It's it's all there on YouTube behind Earl Campbell's almost 200 uh, rushing yards. I want to say he had, uh, I think it was 199 actually, four touchdowns he ran for. Uh, and the Oilers uh, won out in a 35 to 30 victory. Um, it, certainly uh, others might look at um, some later games, but this was a national sort of Shot across the bow, so to speak, and there was a lot of uh, of uh, of energy and and uh, going on there. I um, some would also, uh, frankly, suggest that um, the next year, uh, around December, I think December tenth, two uh, uh, nineteen seventy nine, December tenth, nineteen seventy nine, about a year later, uh, was when sort of the love you blue sort of trademark era, I guess, sort of occurred. But regardless of when you think it's, it was also another Monday night football game, by the way, regardless of how you sort of circle around it, if you were there at the time uh, and, or you were just an NFL fan at the time paying attention, it's probably uh, a burn in your memory what this love you blue phenomenon was. And it was absolutely a heady time, arguably the apex of the, uh, of the excitement that was this, this, this franchise. Um, plenty of, of, uh, of, um, uh, nadirs, of course, uh, along the way, but you have to remember that the AFL, when it was started, the Houston Oilers were, uh, one of the, uh, uh franchises that, uh, helped launch that league. Uh, and we get into, uh, one of the chief protagonists, uh, maybe actually antagonists as we get into, uh, into the guy, but, but, Adams for sure. Uh, was there at the beginning and there through the entirety of this team, as well as how it went to uh, to Tennessee. Ultimately, uh, he is uh, the good guy, certainly in the beginning years, for sure, uh, winning uh, two uh, AFL championships early on uh, and kind of making a mark for pro football in Houston when there was none prior. Uh, certainly got, get, got gets all the accolades, I guess, around uh, the love you blue era for sure. But look, he was also very enmeshed and uh, hands-on, shall we say, to a fault uh, for the majority of the years otherwise. And uh, I would argue that uh, essentially, not unlike the title of Ed Fowler's book, uh, the experience of being an Oilers fan was largely, 
I wouldn't say necessarily lamentable, but certainly heartbreaking and disappointing, especially when uh, they were tantalizingly close to uh, some playoff glory that, uh, frankly, sort of eluded them, uh, not only in the Love You Blue era, but uh, certainly thereafter as well. We get into all of that. It's the Houston Oilers, our first tackling of the topic uh, with our guest this week, the Reverend uh, Ed Fowler, uh, and um, we look forward to presenting it to you in uh, mere moments. Uh, before we get there, let's get some uh, promotional goodness out of the way. The holidays, believe it or not, despite all the distractions that we have in life, uh, are literally right around the corner. Make sure you get a pen and paper and let's write these down, shall we? These are the sites that you want to sort of uh, circle uh, and bookmark and go to uh, for all the uh, forgotten sports uh uh, fans in your life, whether they be family members or friends, uh, this is the the here are the places you want to go to get the best in merchandise uh, for our little uh, our little genre of forgotten sports. And here we go: streakersports.com, the purveyors of sports culture, fifteen percent discount when you use the promo code Good Seats. Awesome stuff at streakersports.com. Lots of sports cultural stuff, including plenty of forgotten and abandoned and uh, previously existing leagues and teams and stuff and such sports history collectibles.com. Yes. The better well-lit eBay, if you will, it is the curated home of the best in forgotten sports memorabilia promo code. There is good seats. That's 15% off all of your purchases there at sports history collectibles.com new stuff just about every week and great photographs of all of it. Uh, check it out. Sports history collectibles.com promo code good seats. Don't forget 417 helmets, 417, 417helmets.com. It's collectible helmets and more. And it's not just for, for pro football teams and, and, and the like, but also all kinds of stuff, cultural stuff. You want to create something custom. Uh, maybe there was an elect, elected uh, official uh, that you want to commemorate uh, on, the, on a helmet or, or for hell, maybe it's even a team in another league. Um, our pal Judd Lasher down in uh, Metropolitan St. Louis can help you out. 417 helmets. Dot com promo code good seats 10% off your purchases there old school shirts.com yes just like the name implies not only great uh, sports stuff of your but great pop culture stuff as well uh restaurants uh, uh various city uh logos uh radio station uh, uh logos etc all there at old school shirts.com promo code good seats 10% off all of your purchases there. And last but certainly not least, our friends at 503 Sports. 503-sports.com, the king of throwbacks. Yes, not only great shirts of teams and leagues no longer with us, but also great handcrafted custom jerseys for many of those same teams. 503-sports, that's 503-sports.com, promo code SEATS for 10% off all of your purchases there. Thank you to all of our great sponsors. Thank you for checking them out, bookmarking and buying uh, for your holiday needs. And uh, thank you, of course, for continuing to listen as we get into our wonderful chat with uh, the lovely Reverend Ed Fowler as we talk about his previous life, but we get into his current life too, uh, around the Houston Oilers and the story of such. Here it is, as always, please enjoy. All right, so let's, uh, for the sake of our audience who tends to be uh, just fanatical about various topics, and obviously when we uh, put this out there, obviously Houston and, and the Oilers and football and, and all that kind of stuff will, it will certainly gravitate uh, uh, 
uh, to a lot of people on a lot of people's radars. But let's set the table a little bit because um, we're. Uh, why don't we kind of fast forward to today and what and and where we find you both physically as well as career and psychically. Uh, and then we can sort of backtrack, I guess, into uh, how you are uh, well-versed on uh, the topic at hand. All right. Today, physically, I am found in Galveston, Texas. We moved to the historic east end of Galveston in March of this year on Super Tuesday, as a matter of fact, uh, about a week before the world turned upside down. We uh, have been here for uh, over half a year now. I am reform. Uh, I am uh, retired from my second career. I came to saving faith uh, rather late in life, well into middle age, and that led me to. Uh, late in life calling into vocational ministry uh, to sort of shorten the story. I ended up going to seminary and being ordained a priest, presbyter, shortened form of that is priest in the Reformed Episcopal Church, which is uh, a uh, confessional, which is to say conservative Anglican body. I served uh, churches in Durango, Colorado, and then Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, and then retired uh, almost three years ago, spent a couple of years in the Hot Springs, Arkansas area, and then we moved to Galveston. And uh, so so that's a fantastic uh, second career, but I think it's even more uh, interesting once people sort of uh, know what your first career was. How about a little bit of background on that? Yeah, sure. I, um, I, uh, as a, uh, as a well-scrubbed young freshman at the University of Texas in 1965, I marched into the offices of the Daily Texan, the campus newspaper, and said, here I am. What will you let me do? And, uh, the, uh, snooty senior managing editor looked down her nose at me and said, I have nothing for you, but you might go try sports. Well, the sports editor said, do you know anything about football? I said, I played it in high school. He said, good, I need somebody to cover the freshman team. We still had freshman teams back then. And so um, that was my, uh, my, my uh, point of, uh, of, of introduction. I worked for a year on the school paper. At the end of my freshman year, I was hired by the uh, Austin American Statesman, continued working there through school. I covered the uh, Texas team that won the national championship in 1969. I went from there to the Kansas City Star, from there to the Chicago Daily News, uh, covered the White Sox for three seasons back in the uh, – Dick, don't call me Richie Allen era. <laughs> and then uh, went back home to Houston and uh, became a columnist at the Houston Chronicle. And that's what I did for 17 years. And I ended up writing Loser Takes All toward the end of that tenure. So th- for you young whippersnappers out there, right, this is uh, uh, back in the day when there was these things called newspapers. And uh, not only were these things called newspapers, but there were these uh, uh, substantial components of them called sports departments. And sports writing was also a, 
a major thing, mostly in the printed form. I, I, obviously, I'm, I'm, you know, over uh, over uh, embellishing here, but but the reality is that the idea of being a sports writer. I mean, you, you've mentioned, you know, there these are major or certainly were major newspapers in their respective markets, right? Mm-hmm. And and the teams that you were covering, right? I, I'm assuming this was pro collegiate, all of the above. Well, yeah, um, the last uh, those la- those last two decades, almost when I was a columnist, this this was in the heyday of sports journalism before the internet ruined the newspaper business, and uh, I pretty much had carte blanche. I, you know, I was at Super Bowls and World Series and Olympics and Masters and British Opens and U.S. Opens and uh, uh, World Cup and on and on and on. And was there any particular sort of beat that uh, you were uh, especially good at or oriented towards or assigned to, or were you general interest? And uh, it almost sounds like you might be a bit of more of a sort of a national sports kind of uh, correspondent for these, for these uh, local brands. Well, yeah, early on, I, I mean, I was a baseball writer in Chicago. I covered the White Sox. Uh, and then, after I moved to the Houston Chronicle, I still continued and became a columnist. I still had a, a, an interest and focus on baseball, but of course, football too. That was the, the, my sport as a youngster. And uh, you, you can't very well be a sports columnist in Texas without a heavy dose of football. So I guess those were the big two for me. And then later on when I discovered golf, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I started making uh, the Masters and the U.S. Open and the British Open and the Ryder Cups and those sorts of things. And I, I really enjoyed golf, and I enjoyed the travel associated with it, playing golf in the U.K. and that sort of thing. So how do you, how do you uh, I guess, focus in on, on the Oilers uh, specifically? Because if, if I'm not mistaken, this is the only sports book that you've, you've put out there, right? No, it is. That's true. Yeah. So I, I guess I'm curious as to how the Oilers become a, a story for you. But obviously, you know, there's the AFL Oilers and then obviously the transition into the NFL. Uh, I suspect that uh, pro football in Houston was probably more on your radar before you were, I'm guessing, generally assigned to cover it. And I'm assuming at, at the at the Houston Chronicle. Well, I, I grew up with football in Houston. Uh, as I think I mentioned, Houston's home for me. Uh, I remember going to uh, Oilers games with my dad at what was called Jefferson Stadium back then on the University of Houston campus. So I certainly had an awareness. Uh, we also went to, to Rice games at Rice Stadium. I, I still remember LSU coming to town with Billy Cannon back when Rice was the Rice was number one in the nation for a brief time in 1956, and back in those years LSU would come to town with Billy Cannon and and win, and I would have to endure in the parking lot after the game, uh, listening to all the Cajuns chanting "Poor Owls." It tore me up. <laughs> so yeah, I you know I I went back a ways with with football, uh, both college and pro in Houston. Well, so but I'm guessing so if you were uh, at UT around 1965 or so, that I'm by my estimation then means that you were, uh, and and this is a theme in in a lot of our investigations of various teams and people remembering them and stuff. Your formative teenage years, right, were probably around 
those first years of not only the original Houston Oilers, but the AFL in particular, specifically, right, overall. And, oh, oh, by the way, the Houston Oilers were the the first two champions of this new AFL in 1661. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, they they had uh, you know it, it was it was very much a minor league back then, and we understood that it wasn't the NFL until the merger. But still, it was uh, it was football. It was professional football. It was our team, and uh, yeah, we were we were very much into all of that. Well, so when does uh, when does the the uh, story and this book for you and the 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 uh, I guess the chronicling of no pun, maybe pun uh, of this, of the team and of the, uh, of uh, their doings. When does it go? When does it cross, I guess, time-wise for you from being a childhood fan and maybe even an adult fan into uh, this is the gig you're covering them. And you are now part of uh, telling the story maybe on a daily basis or even more so uh, of the Oilers. Well, uh, I had, I had, gravitated from Austin to Kansas City to Chicago and then back to Houston. I became the lead columnist uh, on the Houston Chronicle in 1980. So I was, uh, you know, while I wasn't the beat reporter, I was still around the team a lot. I made virtually every road trip, I think. Uh, Again, this was a different era in the newspaper business. I mean, we would send six writers and two photographers on the road with the Oilers. And so uh, I, I was, I was present for all that. I was at, uh, usually during the season, I was out at, while I wasn't a football writer, I was still out at practice uh, on average once a week. And uh, I wrote a lot about the Oilers. The book came about when the publisher uh, came to me and said, Hey, we want this. Uh, we, we want you to do this. We we like your work. Uh, we think there's a place for this book, and here's an advance, and we want you to write it. Well, it's interesting that that around 1980 or so is when you're kind of first sort of um, spilling some ink on the Oilers team because this was probably about the first time uh, in their NFL existence, i.e., after the uh, the merger in. Uh, 69 and 70, uh, or arguably the merger was underway before that. But um, because th- this is sort of the first real taste, I guess, of uh, the Oilers actually being competitive uh, with Bum Phillips at the, uh, at the, uh, at the uh, 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 you know, behind the scenes, you know, pulling all the strings and Earl Campbell, of course, uh, blazing away. Um, I- I- I'm just curious as to, as you become sort of more, shall we say, professionally responsible, for at least some level of covering and commenting on this team. Um, What was sort of the Oilers' experience around that time? Because I think that's when a lot of people really, maybe for the first time generationally, certainly I can remember growing up in the New York metro area, you know, the Oilers were actually one of the teams you'd hope for would be on Monday Night Football because they were actually exciting and fun to watch. Um, But that wasn't always the case, certainly in the first decade in the NFL, and certainly a long time away from their early success back in the beginnings of the AFL. Yeah. Well, the one constant uh, in Oilers history was the owner, K.S. Bud Adams. He was an oil man, the son of an Oklahoma oil man. He grew up in Bartlesville in northern Oklahoma and uh, made his way to Houston in the oil business, became involved in lots of other businesses as well. 
And uh, he was a, shall we say, quixotic figure. So uh, they had the early success. As you mentioned, they won the AFL championship the first two years. But he made some interesting and unfortunate personnel choices along the way. And then they wandered in the desert for quite a long time in, in the early NFL days. And, yeah, uh, I moved back to Houston in 1975. Uh, I started writing sports in Houston in 1978 and then became a columnist in 1980. So I was present there for the, the Bum Phillips, or what's called the Love You Blue era. Sure. And, it, you know, it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard thinking back through all those years to describe it in a way that's tactile to people who weren't there. It was probably, I still think, the greatest love affair between a city and a team, certainly a team that never won the big prize in, in the history of American sports. I mean, Houston was just enraptured with the Oilers. And we had, you know, these fight songs and all this kind of college sort of atmosphere. <laughs> and uh, they went to Pittsburgh and lost the first AFC championship game they played in and they came back and the word had gotten out that there was going to be a, a sort of a pep rally to to welcome the team back home i mean they, they got hammered in pittsburgh i think it was 34 to 5 yeah, this is the and, 1978 season yeah yeah and 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 the astrodome was bursting at the seams i mean it was overflow it was this giant party uh, for a team that had just gotten clobbered in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh was an immeasurably more talented team. I mean, that was Swan and Stallworth and Bradshaw and Ham and Lambert and Franco Harris and Mean Joe Green. I mean, you know, this was a whole team of Hall of Famers. And the Oilers had Earl Campbell, and that was – pretty much it for, I mean, real superstar level talent. And yet Bum Phillips had these guys playing so far over their heads that the, the city just became uh, infatuated with them. And then they went back to the AFC championship game in Pittsburgh the following year and lost again a much more competitive game that might have gone differently if not for a real controversial call and a catch in the end zone. And so, uh, you know, the Cowboys had pretty much owned Texas up until the Bum Phillips days. But during Phillips' tenure there, I mean, there were radio stations all over the state. I mean, even in West Texas, clearing the Oilers games that it had no interest before. And uh, it, 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 the whole state, uh, not to say the, the, the Cowboys were ever forgotten or lost their, their following, they didn't, but they certainly gave up a, a big chunk of it to the Oilers. It was a phenomenon. Well, all right, so lots to unpack there, but let's talk about Phillips for a minute, because Bum Phillips, obviously, you know, he came in, well, I guess, well, he had not a whole, well, he had a bunch of uh, experiences, right? I mean, I kind of going back and forth between sort of high school and, and assistant coaching in um, uh, various uh, uh, collegiate uh, sort of environments. Um, but so he came around the same time that you came back to Houston as well. 
Uh, I think he started, I guess he was the head coach at 75 onward, but I think he at the time prior to that, the year before, was a defensive coordinator. So maybe a little bit more about this guy, where he came from, because he certainly, while he had a, a, a pretty interesting high school and lightly seasoned collegiate career, uh, probably not the guy most people would expect to generate the excitement that by the end of the decade was, you know, fueling this, uh, this love affair for this team on a number of different levels. Yeah, number one, he was he was local. Uh, he was from the Port Arthur Beaumont area, about ninety miles north of Houston. Uh, he was he was the consummate good old boy. I mean, he really did chew tobacco, and he really and he he did wear a, a cowboy hat. It wasn't just a, a, a prop for TV. Uh, he he was quintessential Texas, and uh, he was an easy guy to love. He was also, I mean, his, his players adored him. As I said, they played way over their heads for him. Uh, I, I think, I think he probably got the job through his association with Sid Gilman, who had been uh, a coach of the Oilers before him. Well, sure. But, and and uh, Sid Gilman, by, by the way, obviously uh, very well known to people in the, uh, if we, if you, people hearken back to some of our previous episodes on the old, uh, New York Titans, uh, the pre- predecessor to the New York Jets, right? Sid Gilman, very much in that story. Yeah, he was a, he was a prominent uh, NFL figure, right? Uh, Bum was was one of the most genuine people I've ever encountered. I mean, I'd put him in a class with with Nolan Ryan. Uh, what you see was what you got. Uh, there were never any pretense. He never put on airs. Uh, he had a, a code of his own. I remember him being asked one time because he, he was known to, to to love beer. He loved to drink beer. He drank beer on the, the team charter. He drank beer uh, all over the place. And he was asked once why he never did a beer commercial. And he said, well, I ain't having <clears throat> no youngster uh, getting drunk and smashing up his car on my account. So, you know, he had, he had a code. Uh, Everyone respected him. Everyone uh, who knew him admired him. And he, you know, I, I think he said something along the lines of the coach's job is to make the, the mediocre player average and the average player good and the good player great. And that's, that's what he did. And he had some unorthodox methods for doing it. Well, so explain to me then, you were mentioning sort of the love you blue thing, but I'm, was the love affair with the team in the Houston metro area uh, underway, shall we say, before Phillips arrived uh, in 74, 75? Or were there other aspects that maybe – because they were certainly not doing tremendously well on the field prior to that. No, it wasn't. I mean, you know, I mean, it was Houston's team, and so Houston had an, an affection for the, for the team, just as, as any other city would for its pro football team. But um, the the other piece that that you have to add to the, the the Bum Phillips element was Earl Campbell, again, a Texas guy uh, from Tyler. He went to the University of Texas, won the Heisman Trophy there, and now he's drafted by the Oilers. And he was a force to behold on the football field. I mean, uh, the the combination of speed and power was was just uh, virtually unprecedented. And so 
once again, you have the local angle. You've got Bum from Texas. You've got Earl from Texas. Uh, Earl, again, while a very different personality, I think you'd say a, a genuine sort and uh, a, a guy who was easy for people to like. You put that together with uh, Dan Pastorini, who had a, a flair. Uh, uh, he, he, you know, he, he had a flair for the big play. He also lived large, uh, had a speedboat, uh, dated movie stars, that sort of thing. Uh, so, you know, it was, uh, it was, I guess, the whole package in that, in, in that sense. Um, before we sort of get back to the on-the-field exploits, um, and obviously, you know, we, we, I don't want to gloss over. I mean, Earl Campbell, obviously, Hall of Famer, uh, both at the collegiate and the professional level. You know, th- this, uh, I, I think it's lost on a lot of people. Obviously, a lot of people certainly know and, and revere him uh, for his exploits on the field. But he was, um, if I have my, my numbers correct, he was um, uh, most valuable player in the league in, I think it was, 78. And he was the offensive player of the year in the league for three straight years from, I think it was 78 through 80. Um, mm. I mean, that, that's, you know, I, I don't know, it's unprecedented. It may be, frankly, but that's, um, you know, you're mentioning the Steelers team that they found themselves uh, uh, fall, uh, falling down to, to on two straight AFC championships. But, you know, this guy was, if, if there was a crown jewel in the league at this time, uh, you know, you could argue that Earl Campbell was it, if not one of the it's. Oh, I, I think so. I, I think that's a perfectly valid case. Uh, yeah, he he was he was almost superhuman. Uh, you know, I I still remember going into to to the opponents' locker rooms after games, and uh, the the defensive players would be shaking their heads and they'd be saying things like, "He can't last. He can't last." Because uh, on every play, it seemed he was taking three and four and five hits before he went down. Well, it sounded like sour grapes at the time when when you heard those guys say those things, but in the end, uh, it, it was probably true. I mean, he 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 had a, a great career, but it was a fairly short career. After Bud Adams fired Bum, and Bum went to coach the New Orleans Saints, uh, Bum took Earl over there with traded for him and took him over there with him, and Earl was never anything approaching the player he'd been at Houston. And uh, it, later in life, he's, he's had some serious cognitive issues. I mean, the man just took an incredible pounding because he stayed, well, <laughs> as, as Bum put it one time when somebody observed that, uh, that Earl was really slow getting up, Bum said, yeah, well, he's really slow going down, too. And he was. It it took an army to get him to get him on the ground. Well, for sure, and and all the the video shows it, right? I mean, um, I, and it's also even more interesting. I, I to, to clarify, he was uh, Earl was the uh, MVP of the league in '79, uh, but he was Offensive Player of the Year for '78, '79, and '80, and he was he was also the Offensive Rookie of the Year, right? In '70, I think people sort of forget that uh, Earl made this splash coming right out of college, right? Which, you know, uh, is certainly possible, but is not always the easiest thing, uh, making that transition from uh, the collegiate game to the pro game, right? Yeah, he was that good. Uh, he didn't he didn't miss a beat. He was as dominant a force in, in the pros as he had been in college. And, yeah, that is, that's very rare. 
Well, so tell me about the love, love you blue thing, right? Cause I, I'm, I'm just really curious about how the fans sort of took to this, right? I, it's interesting in my research and I knew enough. I mean, I certainly remember the, that original Houston Oilers number one song, which I think by the way, we'll, we'll have embedded in our episode once we drop this. Um, but it, I think uh, on a per capita basis, uh, the Houston Oilers may have had more official and unofficial theme songs in their career than uh, just about any team that we've explored thus far. Houston has the Oilers, the greatest football team. We take the ball from goal to goal like no one's ever seen. We're in the air, we're on the ground, always in control. And when you say the Oilers, you're talking Super Bowl, cause we're the Houston Oilers. I guess that's a testament to just how much this love affair you mentioned earlier sort of was really, can you, can you somehow describe what this love you blue sort of phenomenon was like to the average Houstonite or Houstonian? Yeah. The, the, uh, the Oilers had a, a setter in that area named Carl Mock and uh, he was, Oh, I, I guess I maybe call him a, a a cowboy poet type. <laughs> he, he concocted this this uh, fight song that uh, had this line about uh, from the fancy passing Dago to the Tyler Bowling Ball, Pastorini Earl Campbell, and uh, and the, you know they take the ball from goal to goal like no one's ever seen, and you know just a, a simple little jingle sort of thing and. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it caught fire, and people all over town were singing it, I suppose, and it was sung during the games, and it was part of the whole Love You Blue picture. Uh, it, it was Love You Blue set to music, I suppose. How about the Astrodome itself, right? Obviously, you know, still uh, the crown jewel, I guess, of, of modern uh, stadium architecture at the time. How much do, How much of that was part of, of the mix? Uh, or was it just kind of, that was yeah, Houston's just stadium. And it, it, I mean, I guess how special was that environment? I mean, sound wise, uh, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, certainly special sound wise yeah all that sound stayed in and there was plenty of noise to stay in uh the the astrodome by the time the oilers came along wasn't a novelty bud adams intended the oilers to play in the astrodome from the beginning but uh even after it was completed there were uh some some contract issues that couldn't be worked out and they ended up playing at uh, Jefferson Stadium on the University of Houston campus and then Rice Stadium, which seated 72,000. Uh, but uh, they didn't get into the Astrodome until it's, I think it was the third year. 
So uh, by then, the new had worn off a bit. But yeah, in terms of uh, a, a, an electric atmosphere, uh, there was probably no place like it. Yeah, although it was um, it was unique in that, I guess, from a football perspective, it wasn't. I mean, I guess the 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 fifty yard line seats, right, were probably the first, like a lot of sort of circular stadiums, right? They were actually the furthest away from the field, right? So it's, you know, I I I, I get the sense that that Adams, despite it being a couple of years before he could they got into the the Astrodome, that that the Astros were considered you know, as the primary tenant versus the Oilers. Is that, is that a fair assessment or am I just reading into that? Well, they were, and they, and they held the, well, no, they, they, they were uh, in a formal sense, the primary tenant, they held the lease and he had, Bud Adams had to go to the Astros to sublease uh, the, the dome for his team. Interesting. All right. Well, let me, let me use that as a, as a, as a backdrop, I guess, for Adams, uh, particularly, I, I guess I want to get into his sort of like his psyche because, um, you know, another big part of the story, again, to somebody who's as uninitiated as I am to it. Um, I, I, I was surprised that frankly, uh, the longevity of his ownership from the earliest of foundational days in the AFL all the way through the, uh, uh, the messy exit uh, into Nashville or to Tennessee, then Nashville. Um, I, he Describe him as a, as an owner. Cause I, I get the sense that he was, well, you sort of hinted at it, but micromanager is a term that I keep seeing in the research. Like he kind of meddled a little too much perhaps in, in some of the sort of more, uh, I don't know, day-to-day operations maybe. Well, that went in fits and starts. There, there were stretches when he he was very hands on. There were other stretches when I don't know. I guess he became occupied with other things and uh, wasn't so involved. But you know, if we're if we're looking at the whole Love You Blue saga and then the beginning of the end in Houston, we 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 have to look at. Bud Adams hiring a general manager named Vlad Herzig. Herzig was an accountant, uh, I mean, literally a CPA, uh, who had worked for the Cleveland Browns, and that's where uh, Adams, how Adams met him. He brought him in, made him general manager, and uh, Herzig had uh, real control issues, shall we say. The the perception was that he resented Bum getting all the glory. And uh, Herzig had managed to convince himself that he was a, a shrewd evaluator of talent and that he was responsible for drafting the players that uh, achieved all the success that they had during that era. He was also uh, in erratic individual, to put it charitably. I mean, just for a couple of examples, he was married. He had a child by a stewardess who worked the team's charter flights. Uh, He made his fatherhood known, and uh, he hoisted the little girl when she was a year old or so on his shoulders before a game and paraded all the way around the, the 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 perimeter of the 
the, the inner perimeter of the Astrodome uh, with, with the, the stadium filling with fans. In uh, Buffalo on the night before a game there, he got into an argument with some rather loud members of a wedding party at the team hotel and dropped his trousers and mooned these people. Uh, that was, was Lad Hersey. And he uh, wanted Bum Phillips out, and he got him out uh, in 1980. The Oilers played the last game of the Bum Phillips era in Oakland, in a wild card game, they lost decisively to the Raiders. And uh, I believe it was the next day, uh, the Oilers announced that Bum Phillips had been fired. So um, you, 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 when, you, when you think in terms of Adams and who he was and how he operated, you have to put Herzig in that mix. And, uh, I mean, the, the whole history of the franchise – would have been much, much different if he had a more conventional, shall we say, general manager and someone who wanted to work with Bum Phillips. What was the um, what was the, the Houston fan uh, response to Phillips being so unceremoniously uh, relieved of duties after that? Oh, it was outrage. I mean, you know, what can you do about it? But uh, yeah, we, we've just been describing the relationship Bum had with the city. Well, they certainly weren't going to turn on him after one playoff or one more playoff loss, even if it was in the wild card round. They were going to the playoffs year in, year out. I mean, it was the, it was routine. Yeah, it was the, the second straight year they went 11-5 and five in the regular season, right? I mean, yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean they and uh, and so yeah, there 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 was outrage. I I I don't recall, but if if Bud didn't get death threats, I'd be I'd be surprised. Well, I, it didn't take long though for the team to tank on the on the uh, on the field. I mean, I think they were down to uh, they. Uh, uh, I think in '82 they were down to uh, one and eight, uh, which I know uh, obviously there was this strike related stuff, but. Um, but you know, at two and fourteen in nineteen eighty three, three and thirteen in nineteen eighty four, um, you know, this the tone for the eighties certainly. Um, w- what a disappointment, given all of the um, uh, of the excitement, the enthusiasm, and the success in the late seventies. Yeah, um, as as we've been saying, the the players gave everything they had for Bum Phillips. Well, no one was going to replicate that. And certainly the coaches who followed didn't. And you got this, uh, frankly, pretty mediocre bunch, Ed Biles. And then Hugh, uh, Hersey went to, uh, to Canada. He wanted, he wanted a quarterback named Warren Moon, who'd had a lot of success in Canada. And so to get Moon to sign with the Oilers, he hired his Canada coach, Hugh Campbell. I remember, um, uh, by this time, I was hosting a daily radio show, and I, uh, uh, I had uh, Ray Childress, the defensive tackle, on on, on my show as a, a weekly guest. And uh, I asked him off air one day. I when the, I uh, this was after Campbell had left, but I asked I asked Childress uh, off air. I said, "What was practice like when Hugh Campbell was here?" Ray said. Well, mostly we stood around for a couple of hours and then we went home. 
So <laughs> it was it was an undistinguished sort of uh, record after Bum Phillips for a long time. Yes. But in the late 80s, uh, they, there was uh, some return to some winning ways. Um, and I, I find it uh, interesting that um, that it seems like around that time is also when Adams and maybe be, I wonder if it was because of the renewed playoff success of the Oilers or despite it, uh, that he in parallel uh, started raising hackles about potentially moving the team either uh, to Jacksonville or maybe just as a threat to get some improvements done to the Astrodome, which, you know, at that time then was in the late eighties was, you know, we're looking at almost 25 years of existence at that point. Right. Yeah. Okay. Two things there. The, the primary reason for their resurgence on the field was a fellow named Mike Holovac. Mike was maybe, uh, the, the best personnel man, well, certainly the best I've ever uh, known or known about. I think he was as good as any as the NFL has ever known. If you go back and look at uh, the rosters in those years in the late 80s, early 90s, when Hollaback was on the scene, uh, you'll see the Oilers sent 10, 11, 12 players to the Pro Bowl year after year. He could find football players, and he could find them in the seventh round. And that's why they, they, they sort of turned things around, never in the sense of winning big in the playoffs, but they had a lot of regular season success. They also uh, had a coach that Herzig brought in named Jerry Glanville, who was frankly self-destructive. He, uh, I, I still remember one game they lost in Cincinnati, uh, when Sam Weish's Bengals poured it on him, beat him by three or four touchdowns, and Weish just went off after the game and said everything that other coaches had been saying privately, that they wanted nothing like they so badly as they wanted to beat Jerry Glanville's Oilers, because he would put bounties on you know the the kicker and that that sort of cheap stuff. So uh, that was going on on the field. Now, in terms of Bud wanting out, the big, the big impetus there was that these new stadiums were starting to come online in other cities, and he saw how profitable they were for his fellow owners, and he wanted a piece of that action. So he became the first, I don't know if he's, this is still true, but he was certainly the first, if he's not the only owner in pro sports to put the gun to the same city's head twice. He started threatening to move to Jacksonville. He did it in a highly public way. There were pictures on Houston television of him stepping off a helicopter in the middle of the field in Jacksonville. This was before Jacksonville, of course, had an NFL team. And so he used that for leverage, and Houston agreed to do improvements to the Astrodome that included adding 60-some, I believe, luxury boxes, which were a big revenue generator, and adding seats and doing various things. And the, the bill, as I recall, was $67 million. So all that happened. He got his way, and everything was supposed to be fine. Well, it was fine until he decided he still wasn't getting enough revenue, and he could get more 
with a new stadium, which he had to have. Uh, so he starts romancing the folks in Nashville. It was always Nashville. Yeah, they, they ended up going to Tennessee to Memphis for a couple of years first, but that was just a way station while Nashville got its stadium built. Uh, he started romancing Nashville. Bob Lanier was the mayor of Houston at the time, probably the best mayor the city ever had. And I remember sitting in his office and him telling me, Look, the city, it was a city, it was a, actually a city county joint venture. Uh, the, the, the city and county still owe tens of millions of dollars on the Astrodome upgrades. There's no way I can go back to the downtown business community and get them agree to more tens of millions of dollars for a brand new stadium. And so, uh, they, they, in the end, said, no, we're not going to go for it. And he picked up his toy and left. Well, it, it, it's interesting, too, because it, it, the part of that leverage, though, right, was a team that, that was now, after kind of a, a number of seasons in the 80s, having sort of uh, basically gone wayward into, you know, into seeming oblivion on the field. I mean, they were actually, you know, this, this was a perennial playoff team again with, you know, under Glanville, certainly Jack Pardee, um, you know, uh, you had a team that, you know, was routinely finishing second or in a couple of seasons first in the AFC Central, right? So I, I, I'm guessing that that didn't hurt, right, uh, versus a team that was, shall we say, more moribund in the earlier part of the decade, right? That that probably had to at least instill. But but I'm guessing, though, or, or you tell me, was it was it uh, was the fan enthusiasm as uh, uh, manic, I guess, as it was back in the first sort of iteration of the Love You Blue era earlier? Well, it never reached that level. Uh, that that was supersonic back in the Love You Blue era. But sure, it, you know, it was a team that was winning a lot, but again, by this time. Uh, Jack Pardee came from the University of Houston and installed what he called his run-and-shoot offense with a bunch of little midget receivers running around all over the place. And uh, they had a lot of success with that. And so, yeah, they, they were certainly popular in, in town, but again, you, you, whatever else can be said, you're going to come up against this issue of we still owe, I don't know the number, 30, 40 million dollars, whatever it was on the Astrodome. And now we're going to shell out, 150 million, whatever it was, for a new stadium. And as far as, you know, what sort of leverage he had in Nashville, I don't know enough about Nashville to know. My sense was they were so hungry. They didn't have a a pro, uh, major league pro franchise of any sort. And uh, I I think uh, if if the Oilers had been winless, they would probably have done what they did in terms of their stadium deal for Bud. Now I, I wonder now, now that I'm thinking about it, um, the uh, the dark years I guess of the early and uh, most most of the uh, early through mid '80s. Um, I'm wondering what kind of effect the um, the USFL's Houston Gamblers had during that time because that was a pretty exciting team in a very interesting league, obviously in the spring and all that kind of stuff. But uh, did the Gamblers' uh, relative success, or at least interest or, or difference, I guess, from what the Oilers were at the time. Did that have any uh, competitive uh, or lasting or 
any resonating effect on the stability or the interest of the fans of, of the Oilers franchise in the NFL? Not a lot. Uh, the Gamblers did have success. Jim Kelly, of course, was, was you know, I mean, he went on to be a, an excellent NFL quarterback. Um, but they were still the newcomers. Uh, the Oilers were the established brand. Uh, I don't know if anyone was ever absolutely convinced that the uh, USFL was going to endure. So it, it was an issue, but I wouldn't call it a, a real big issue. Um, before we sort of get into the denouement of, of, the, of the, the team and then ultimately uh, and, and sort of oddly uh, getting into Tennessee and ultimately to Nashville, um, from your recollections, like what, what was it about this team? I mean, in covering it, you, you mentioned you weren't the beat reporter, but I suspect you spend more than your fair share uh, of going to games and, and, and being part of the coverage of the team, both in their uh, halcyon days as well as in their lean years uh, in between. Uh, any particular memories, aside from the ones you've shared already, that sort of popped to mind that uh, either are indicative of, of what the team was like or just, just, just stuck out in, in terms of people and personalities and, uh, you know, uh, and frankly, maybe along the lines of where your book goes, that kind of maybe evidence kind of the, I don't know, the, the I want to call it lamentable because they just certainly had their, their playoff years of, of success, but they never, to your point earlier, never really kind of won at all, right? And I, I, there's a point at which I guess Oilers fans sort of almost uh, became, uh, you know, resigned to the fact that this was just a, a team that was just never going to get there. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's the same old syndrome. I mean, just very briefly, we saw it at the University of Houston in their basketball program. You may recall Phi Slamma Jamma, the uh, sure. Kyle Lewis teams that went to the final four, three straight years and lost. And so, Guy Lewis was a bum because they never won the national championship. Well, in the years that after after they did get rid of him or after he did leave, uh, they 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 pined for <laughs> for Guy Lewis. Uh, so there was there was some of that effect with with the Oilers, I suppose. Um, what defines the era? I don't know. I when I when I think of defining moments, I think back to. The Bum Phillips years. Uh, I could I could give you a number of them from from that era. From uh, the '80s, it was um, what did you do at practice? Well, we stood around for two hours and then we went home. Uh, that was Hugh Campbell. Then when they got better under Glanville, it was uh, Glanville uh, passing out. He had, if I remember right, it was a, an army helmet, the sort of thing soldiers wear in the trenches that he handed out to, after a game to a, a special teams player who exhibited the most kamikaze zeal. He like, you know, took out a player on the other team, that sort of thing. Uh, Glanville strutted around wearing this uh, silver belt buckle that <laughs> was about half as big as he was. And uh, I think I said in the column one time he, he pushed it into the stadium in a wheelbarrow in front of him. Um, he was, uh, he, you know, he, I think everybody knows him. He, he did some TV commentary later on. Uh, he was a, a, a bit of a Napoleon type. And uh, the he had a, a certain 
he had a certain cadre of players who bought into his act and uh, went for his inducements and uh, a, a probably bigger group that thought it was all pretty ridiculous. And uh, again, they had good talent because Mike Holovac drafted. Holovac came in as I, I, executive vice president or something like that, and then uh, eventually became general manager. He was in charge of the draft the whole time. So he had a number of years there. And um, and, and they had uh, uh, names that, uh, I mean, if you follow pro football, you know these guys. You know the name of, of Bruce Matthews and Mike Munchak. And Dean Steinpuller had some injuries and wasn't ever as good as those guys, but he was a, a heck of a talent as well. Uh, so there were, so there were linemen. Uh, I always suspected they drafted linemen in the first round because they were cheaper to sign. But in any case, um, they, uh, they, they played at a high level, but, uh, oh, I'll tell you one memory that, that, that comes, uh, flying back. A playoff game in Denver, Mile High Stadium. Uh, Glanville decided backed up down inside his own 10-yard line to run a gadget play that he called Stagger Lee. And uh, he, he had a, a pass go out to uh, a receiver on the flank, but it wasn't a pass. It was a backward pass, so it was a lateral. Well, it was recovered for a touchdown by the Broncos, who went, uh, went on to win rather handily. And so there was an illustration of how Glanville, uh, trying to demonstrate how clever he was, put his team in a big bind. I, I, that's 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 um, I, well, but I but it, it it's um, perhaps emblematic. No, uh, around this franchise. I mean, I mean, I, I want to put that maybe in context because the. You know, the, the ending of the story in Houston just seems to be, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe in hindsight, you could sort of say you could have seen this coming. But I wonder at the time when Adams was, you know, trying to rustle up uh, the stadium issue. In this this case, just, just a number of years after, well, not even 10 years after shaking down the, 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 uh, the county and the city for renovations to the Dome. He was back with proverbial 10-gallon hat in hand, uh, clamoring for a brand-new stadium altogether, right, which wasn't going to happen, right? I mean, when how, how did you see this from your lens, from what you remember, this story kind of playing out? Was this sort of a they're out of here in slow motion, or, or was it not that clear in your mind what was going to happen to this franchise in the 90s? Well, it, it became clear. Uh, to me, personally, the day I had that conversation with Bob Lanier, the mayor, when he said, I, I can't, Lanier was, a, was an old-fashioned deal maker. He was a real estate developer by trade, very successful one, who became a very uh, successful politician because he knew how to make deals. He was, I probably shouldn't say this, but he was what Donald Trump wanted to be. Well, he. Uh, By the way, this will be dropping after the election, so who knows what that will mean? But anyway, go ahead. That's good. Um, 
he uh, he was very good at bringing people together and making deals. And he said, I can't make this happen. Uh, it just won't work. People aren't going to get behind a huge bond issue while all this money is still owed on the Astrodome. So that was, that was the, that was when it became clear to me that this thing was going nowhere. And yes, indeed, they were going to leave. And of course, now we had all the prophets of doom saying, well, it'll be forever before Houston gets another NFL franchise. It turned out just to be a few years. Um, how many years was it? I, I five, four, five, something like that. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, but um, at at that point, um, it, the 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 jig was up. That that was all that was uh, that that was all that could be done. That was all that was going to be done. And so now we start getting these visuals of uh, Bud jetting off to Nashville. And uh, and putting his deal there in place, so they uh, they 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 did their deal. The Oilers were supposed to play in Houston three more years while the stadium was being built in Nashville, uh, and that turned out in the first year to be every bit the disaster you might have predicted. Well, I sure. Mean, it's, be, it's become a lame duck thing, right? I, I, my understanding is that in 95, the end of the 95 scene is, was 95 seasons when it was announced. But when was it in the air? Was it, was it before then or was it really a surprise in, in, at, when the announcement came in at the end of the 95 season? Well, I think it came into focus for people in 95. Yeah, and, and so they're supposed to play three more years. Well, in 96 – uh, they had crowds, not every game, but some games of, of fewer than 30,000 fans. I mean, I, you know, this is, this is football country. That was unheard of. Good team, bad team, whatever. Uh, but uh, people were just, they were past the anger stage. It was, we don't care anymore. Uh, they've decided to go. So we're sort of writing them out of history, at least out of our current context. And so uh, the league stepped in and, and got everybody together and they decided they'd go to Memphis because there was a, a suitable stadium there and play for two years there until the stadium was ready in Nashville. And that's what happened. Yeah. And the fans in Memphis didn't like that either. Cause they knew they were, it was a goner situation there too. They were just a temporary way station. Right. And, uh, that's uh, that that too. Exactly. I'm sure. Just yeah. so. So how about yeah, Jeff so, Fisher? Uh, I was going to say, how about Jeff Fisher, the coach at the time, right? He, I think it's it lost on on all of us in in this because because Fisher, obviously a big uh, a character in uh, where the the now Titans sort of uh, came into being. But Fisher was the coach of this thing uh, mm-hmm. in '95 and '96. I mean, he must have, and frankly, brought them back to a little bit of respectability. But how does he and his staff and the players sort of handle all this? Because we're talking about a very, uh, you know, traumatic kind of uh, period of time. The, the last years in Houston, uh, the, the couple of years in Memphis while the Nashville thing sort of plays out, and then ultimately trying to domicile in, in Nashville, that could not have been helpful or, or easy in, the, in this process either. No, Fisher, Fisher was a good man. He, he handled it uh, 
professionally and even stoically. He just kept his mouth shut. He took his lumps. He did the best he could with what he had. And uh, I, I think it's fortunate he was rewarded by getting to stay on. He, you know, he had been on staff. He'd been the secondary coach before he was promoted to head coach. Uh, so he, he'd been around. He knew where the bodies were buried. He knew the personalities involved. And he just, uh, just bit his, his lip, his tongue and, 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 uh, and, and kept his head down and handled it all as well as anyone could have, I think. So it was good that he got to have a taste of success after they finally got to Nashville. So as the team is, uh, uh, overstaying its welcome, I guess, 95, 96, um, and the team sort of, uh, fumbles its way, uh, into Tennessee, uh, and then ultimately to to Nashville by ninety nine. So, give me a sense of was there any feeling of abandonment by the fans and or the sports media there in Houston, or was it kind of good riddance? And I guess the 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 kicker of that question is, what were the Houston fans and maybe even the sports media feeling once the Titans in their first year in Nashville went all the way to the Super Bowl? Was there a sort of indignation where there's was there sort of closet rooting for the team or was it was it pretty much a clean break because you know you had your chance and you 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 left us and we don't really care how you're doing going forward like I, I guess the lingering fandom is there was there is there still any uh during that process of leaving and then ultimately where they've been living for years since well, you know, there's always going to be some nostalgia. I mean, I, over the years, I still occasionally get an email now and then from somebody who said, hey, I just reread your book, that sort of thing. <laughs> so there's always going to be a few. But um, I, I would say Houston processed the Oilers leaving in 95. Well, really in 95, there was, there was anger then. There was righteous indignation. And and there was some, and it wasn't all directed about Adams. There were the diehard fans that th- that thought that the city and the mayor should have done whatever was necessary to keep the team in Houston. So all that was processed then. By '96, the deal was done. He he signed his contract in uh, in Nashville. And so it's, it was, let's move on. And that's what the city did. It was, you know, whatever, whatever thought there was put into pro football in Houston back then was, what are we going to do to get a new team? And I don't remember just when, but, uh, you know, discussion started about a new stadium. Uh, you could do a new stadium even with money owed on the Astrodome if Bud wasn't going to get the benefit of it because he had been the guy who, uh, who did the shakedown. So, uh, by the time the Tennessee Titans went to the Super Bowl, I don't know that Houston really noticed. Uh, it was, it was as though the, um, the, the Seattle Seahawks had gone to the Super Bowl. Uh, that's that's my recollection going back those twenty little over twenty years. Well, ninety nine was also the year that uh, the uh, the new franchise was announced too. So maybe there was a little bit of a, a, a sting removal, uh, I guess, from from any of uh, the lasting uh, effects of that. Right, but you know that said, uh, it's I mean you mentioned nostalgia, right? The, the Texans, you know, really uh, 
seem to sort of continue the uh, the tradition of sort of never really sort of getting over the hump, even frankly into the from a regular season, you know, with some some stellar performances and and, and getting to, but it, um, so nostalgia for what? I guess it would be the question. I mean, the Texans obviously brand new stadium, it's gorgeous, state of the art. Um, they've been competitive on a number of occasions, but um, it, it almost feels to me sort of uh, quite similar in terms of the uh, inability, I guess, for for that team to kind of get over the hump. Not unlike the Oilers, maybe Sans even some of the stars of the Oilers, for that matter. Yeah. Well, um, I, I, I think um, I think you really have to make a separation there. I, I don't think there's that much association between the Oilers and the Texans. It was, okay, we're going to stop this, and then eventually we're going to start this new thing. So, you know, some obviously a lot of people were fans of both, and uh, but uh, I, I don't think there was any Oiler hangover that carried over to the Texans. There, there were high hopes. Uh, Bob McNair, the owner of the Texans, uh, was uh, a well-regarded businessman, obviously with a lot of money. And uh, he, he put a lot of money into it. He put some of his own money into the stadium, which was a, an important gesture probably in terms of uh, the popularity. But uh, I, I don't think the, the Texans suffered any ill effect from the Oilers' years. I think whatever, what, whatever, whatever uh, disapproval there's been of them, they, they earned on their own. <laughs> they, they just uh, this year got rid of a coach who uh, was uh, about as unpopular as, you can, as a coach can be who's going to the playoffs every year. So I, we kind of obsess about, uh, as we round the corner here, uh, you know, uh, sort of the where various team histories kind of sort of reside and or uh, in the minds of fans, the minds of sports writers, whomever, the minds of historians, uh, halls of fame, et cetera, where the sort of the legitimate history not only sort of resides, but can also legitimately be called back from. Um, now, this you said earlier in our as we in our lead up to conversation, arcane. Well, this is certainly an arcane topic for sure. But um, I, I tend to believe that this stuff kind of matters. And I guess the question I'll ask you then, with that as the background or the backdrop, is where where does the history, where do the memories, where does all the nostalgia and or the, the you know the memories and 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 the good, the bad, and the indifferent about this Houston Oilers franchise? Where does it kind of reside? I mean, is it in the lineage? I guess officially the lineage resides into the Tennessee Titans, right? But the brand is long gone. It's dead. And it's been, you know, replaced by a brand new franchise. Well, not brand new anymore, right? But at least a couple of decades old now. But the Houston Texans, right? And I guess the question is, if I'm a, I don't know, multi-generational Houston football, pro, pro football fan, uh, and I, I, I know the Oilers story. Perhaps I was part of it in some way, shape, or form. Where do I? Uh, where do the allegiances kind of lie, or is it just? Is it basically a a chapter uh, in history that just is closed, and there really isn't any, you know, official sort of relationship from the Oilers story to that of either the Texans or uh, the Titans? 
No, I really, I don't, I really don't think in the minds of most people in the Houston area, there's a strong connection. Uh, the Oilers were over. That was, you know, uh, frankly, you, you've, you've been kind enough to refer to the book I wrote, Loser Takes All. Uh, frankly, uh, looking back, and it, it didn't take, as a matter of fact, I hadn't even finished the book, uh, which was published in 1997, that uh, this occurred to me. Uh, as I say, I was approached on writing the book. I had, uh, I had not written a book up to that point. And so I wanted to take the project on. In retrospect, I would not have. And, you know, whatever the merits of the book as, as a piece of literature, uh, the marketability was really limited because people in Houston had decided we're moving on. We're not angry anymore. We don't care anymore. And people in Nashville, uh, were not, uh, were not going to listen to anything negative about their new team and its owner, Bud Adams. And of course, there was a lot of negative about Bud and the history in the book. So, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was, this story is closed. We're going to start a new story in Houston, uh, Tennessee. They're going to do their thing, but that's their thing, not ours. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And I, I, I also kind of trying to f- struggle with, and again, I'm not, I don't live in the Houston area and, and, you know, I've only followed the Texans sort of, uh, you know, just as an average NFL fan and frankly, you know, not as much as I used to, but that's another story. Um, I, you know, I wonder what like rivalries, right? So I, certainly there is a, I guess, uh, artificial or, or at least sort of kindling of a rivalry with the Dallas Cowboys just because of the, the geography there, right? Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know how much of it really is a rivalry, but you would think, or perhaps one of those potential rivalries could be, although maybe I'm just like, I'm just stirring it up now with, with nothing to sort of show for it, is that of the, with the Tennessee Titans. I mean, they do, they are both in the AFC South. And you'd think that maybe that could be an interesting, uh, I don't know, overlap or, or uh, con- concentricity, if you will, between the old and the new, right? But both new teams or, or currently uh, domiciled or currently uh, iterated teams and the old ghost, I guess, that kind of brings them together or, or uh, perhaps inhabits uh, some of their, uh, you know, their, their old uh, rickety memories, right? That being the Houston Oilers. I don't know. They're just something that's interesting. You, you hate to sort of see all of that history, given especially that just amazing fandom in the late, 90, uh, late 70s and, and, and the great stories and some of the great players and stuff. And it's a shame, frankly, that um, there's no sort of real place, I guess, officially or even maybe even unofficially, where that can sort of be, shall we say, remembered. Um, you know, versus, say, some of these other teams that, you know, can either officially have never left their 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 places of domicile and 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 can bring back, you know, uh, memorable clubs and and players in their history and and recall all kinds of stuff for their you know regional sports networks for their preseason games and stuff. I mean, there's something in that history, and it's just a shame that it seems like there's no place perhaps for it to go. Yeah, very little. Yeah, back in the in the beginning of the AFL. Uh, there was certainly a Houston-Dallas rivalry. I mean, uh, 
uh, Lamar Hunt in Dallas and Bud Adams in Houston founded the AFL, and they had two of the charter franchises, and they were both in Texas. And yeah, it, it was it was a big deal back then. <clears throat> and I wouldn't say there's nothing special about the Texans playing the Cowboys today. I think there is, but uh, it's oh I don't know maybe on a par with the Astros playing the Rangers. Um, it's uh, it, it, it's a bigger game than others, but not the end of the world. When 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 the Oilers left, you know they they took Jeff Fisher. They took they had Steve McNair by this time, and I think uh, there were probably some people in Houston who who followed him and a few of the other players after they left. But uh, again, you you might get a different take from somebody else. But my sense of it was, uh, it's over, it's done, and uh, we're we're at they they left us, and <clears throat> we're moving on. They, you know, in, in terms of of the history uh, for uh, people who I guess are have to be considered old timers now, uh, I, I think. The, the the certainly the fondest memories are the old love you blue days that that was uh, you know the record is what it what, what it is they never won the AFC championship they certainly didn't win a super bowl but as a cultural phenomenon it really was something special and the people who lived through it still remember it fondly they remember going to the pep rallies they could probably uh, name the whole roster for you from that era, and they hold this warm spot in their heart for Bum Phillips and Earl Campbell and Dan Pastorini and some others. All right. How about some time to promote here? Um, uh, for those who are either new to the Oilers story or remember it and somehow want some kind of uh, uh, look back, and I, there's there's not a lot of writing about this team, Um and I believe uh, the book from 97 is still in print, if I'm not mistaken. Um, just you know, give our audience the, the title and, and the imprint. And, and is, there, is there any afterward, perhaps, uh, even in your uh, post-second career that, that, that you think uh, might be rattling around in your brain or in your old files? Uh, tell us about the book. Yeah, well, the book is, is titled uh, Loser Takes All, and the subtitle is uh, Bud Adams, Big business and bad football. The the book is not as much a sports story as a sports business story. The factors that uh, that that coalesced that came together to uh, to to eventuate in the Oilers moving to Nashville and becoming the Tennessee Titans. Uh, the, there there's no. There's no afterward. There's no postscript because, as we've been saying, when it ended, actually before it ended, <laughs> it ended. Uh, yeah, Yogi was wrong. Sometimes it is over before it's over, <laughs> and it was in this case. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, anybody who uh, who is interested in the era, who's interested in uh, the personalities of the era. Uh, and there are some other stories, of course, in the book that we haven't gotten around to. Uh, but yeah, you, you you might enjoy it, and sure, you can find it on Amazon.com these days. Many, many thanks to Father Ed. Uh, tremendous conversation, tremendous story as well. 
and, and what a life, uh, I, you know, literally going from uh, one career, literally across the uh, complete uh, end of the spectrum to to quite another. And uh, I just think it's an amazing, an amazing journey. And uh, that's what, uh, frankly, life is all about, is that that journey that we're all on uh, together. Uh, but uh, let us uh, focus on the uh, the matter at hand. The book that you must get uh, is available, of course, from our website at goodseatstillavailable.com. Just click on this episode number 189 with Ed Fowler and you will find a link to Loser Takes All, Bud Adams, Bad Football and Big Business. Uh, it is uh, published by Longstreet Press. It came out in 1997. It's still readily available. You can find it really wherever good books are found. But if you buy it on our from our link there, our Amazon link on our website, we'll get a couple of shekels of love, uh, as will, of course, uh, Father Ed. Uh, as uh, we would love to uh, send a few more uh, book sales his way uh, for uh, a story that uh, will continue to uh, fascinate us. And hopefully we'll get into some more conversations uh, about the Houston Oilers. Um, let's see. Uh, I, uh, uh, besides thanking uh, Ed, I want to mention that uh, we dropped a couple of songs in the, in the midst of that conversation. Uh, and for those of you who either don't have your own copies already or, or want to find out more about them, uh, one was the uh, Love You Blue song, Love You Blue by Mac Hayes. Uh, that came out in 1980, and obviously it uh, uh, sounds a lot like um, uh, the uh, old Beatles song, Love You Do, of course. Uh, obviously, uh, Messrs. Lennon and McCartney are credited as co-songwriters because they wrote the music and the tune, of course. Uh, that's on Ram Records, came out in 1980. Uh, and uh, that was sort of part of the official trademarked uh, Love You Blue phenomenon. Uh, back in the day. And uh, part of that mixture, of course, was the other song that we dropped in the midst of that interview with Ed, uh, literally called Houston Oilers Number 1. That's the one I remember as a kid. Uh, and that's by Lee Offman and Gridnitz. I uh, don't know how that name came about, but that's on Mom Records, M-O-M Records. Uh, I don't know what M-O-M stands for because on the uh, on the record uh, sleeve there, it's uh, it's got... Uh, it's uh, abbreviated M.O.M. So it stands for something. I'm sure somebody in our listening audience will know what that means or stands for. Uh, that came out, I believe, in 1978, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, you know, and it's interesting. I think Houston, uh, the Oilers, uh, uh, perhaps over-indexed in, uh, in novelty songs associated with with the team. I think it's probably the, the most amount. And uh, stay tuned in a second. You're going to see even yet another one. Uh, in the mix. But uh, before we get to that, uh, I want to thank uh, our pal Jerry Payne. Jerry Payne, audio excellence. He has uh, done, once again, Yeoman's Like Work and helping getting uh, our show uh, together and stitched into a, a something comprehensible. We thank you, kind sir, of course. And uh, don't forget to check us out on social media. You'll find us at uh, uh, the various places, such as Twitter, at Good Seats Still. Uh, you'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And yes, you'll find a little page devoted to us as well at uh, or on Facebook. Uh, let's see. Also, uh, you want to send us email, please do so at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, if you'd like to sign up for our newsletter, our little weekly sort of a tip sheet on what's going to be uh, the topic of the week, uh, you can uh, find that as well as a bunch of other stuff, as well as all of our old episodes, by the way, at our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, thanks for visiting that early and often. And uh, okay, let's leave you with yet another a great novelty tune, perhaps one that's a little less known, uh, but uh, was a discovered gem in our little research effort here this week. 
Uh, we leave you now with the dulcet tones of perhaps one of the uh, uh, well-known and well-regarded star players. Yeah, singing the song. Number, you know him as d- number double zero. It's Kenny Burrow and the B team singing from 1979. This is when they were, get, were getting ready to maybe make a run. The Super Bowl itch. Yeah, it was on Cherry Records. Lyrics by Barbara Livitz and Linda Miller. Music by David Healy. Here it is in all four minutes and 18 seconds worth of its uh, disco goodness. It's the Super Bowl itch. All right, itch away, friends. Take care. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. There's something going round. Down in Houston town. It's caught by young and old. Yeah.